Joshua worship team, thank you again for drawing our attention above, uh, giving us an opportunity to set our mind on things above, on the Lord Jesus Christ and what he means to us and what he accomplished for us. And, you know, the hope is that every aspect of our service uh, does the same, does the same thing, that we just continue to exalt Jesus Christ in our mind and our thinking. We believe that even the title of this series is We Behold the Lamb, that good things happen when we occupy ourselves with Jesus Christ. And so I want to just kind of continue that as we study this morning. If you're not already there, uh, go ahead and turn with me to the book of John. And uh, we're, we're going to start in verse 19 this morning. Well, I'm lying to you. We're going to actually start in verse 28. And we'll come back to verse 19. But really, we're starting a new section in verse 19 that uh, is going to run through chapter 12, verse 50. It's a the largest section of the book, it's where John has hand-selected seven signs, which are going to be followed by seven discourses. And the whole goal, again, remember, why does he pick these seven signs? He hand-selected these. He hand-selected these discourses to do what? To convince you and I, to convince his readers to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Because believing in Jesus Christ provides what? According to the purpose of the book, life, eternal life in his name. And the reason for that is he's the one who died for your sins and rose again. He's the one who lives. And because when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, the God of the universe not only counts his death in your place so that you'll never have to face it, but he also provides Jesus's righteousness to you. And he provides life that never ends. This all comes when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. And so as we get into verse 19 this morning, it's really interesting. We, uh, over the next couple of weeks, we're going to see a very momentous week in the life of Jesus, in the life of John the Baptist, in the life of some disciples. And what do I mean by that? Well, jump, jump with me to verse 29. You'll see that phrase, in the next day. Verse 35, again, the next day. Verse 43, the following day. And then chapter 2, verse 1, on the third day. It's, when you do the, the addition, it's seven days we're looking at here. And it's a very momentous week. Lots of things happening, right? Lots of, lots of action happening, which, which is going to be fun to kind of consider that. But as we get into this morning's subsection of, of sections in verse 19, we're going to see what I'm calling an interrogation of John the Baptist or a Q&A session. That's a softer way to describe it. But it's considering the audience who's asking him the question, it's more like an interrogation. And he's going to get these questions thrown at him because the Jewish leaders at this point in time, John is getting too popular. They're a little concerned with his popularity. And so they are trying to figure out who is this guy? What is his identity? And you know why they're trying to figure that out? They're not really listening to his message. They're trying to figure out if he claims a certain identity, then we'll listen to him. If he doesn't claim a certain identity, then we're not going to listen to him. It's kind of like in our day, if someone says, you know, someone, I remember one time I was in a, uh, when I worked in commercial real estate, I was in a meeting and somebody came to, somebody was hired, an outside consultant was hired to go over some HR rules, you know, how to play, play nicely in the sandbox at work kind of deal. And, and I remember the, the person that came started giving this lecture about HR and, and, and my boss actually raised his hand and said, could you, before you go on, could you give us your qualifications? <laughs> Unfortunately, this person had not even graduated from high school, and, and, and they were in there lecturing this group of business professionals. Well, right away, they lost credibility. Uh, everything they said, even though they could present well, they lost credibility. Well, the Jewish leaders are trying to figure out, should we listen to this guy or not? Is, is this guy a danger 
to our manner and way of life or not, or is he somebody legitimate? So they're just going to send a, a group to, um, to, to kind of figure that out, figure out who is this John the Baptist guy? Why are so many people coming to him? But before we start in verse 19, let's jump down to verse 28. I felt bad for Mark because if you've got a different translation than the New King James or King James, it says Bethany. That's what he was expecting, I think, Bethany. But it's Betharbara in verse 28. These things were done in Betharbara beyond the Jordan where John was baptized. So this gives us a historical record, a kind of a geographic record of the, the area where the events of this week took place. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to highlight it here, even on this map, uh, Beth Arbara, which, which ironically, archaeologists still can't really uh, precisely locate today. But they think it was this Bethany beyond the east side of the Jordan. Now, those of us that have read our Bible, we're familiar with the word Bethany. We've seen it in our Bibles. It's a different Bethany than what we're thinking of where Martha, Mary, and Lazarus were located. We're going to see Jesus there in that Bethany on the west side of the Jordan later uh, in the book of John. We're going to see him there multiple times. John 11, where he raises Lazarus from the dead. We're also going to see him there during Passion Week. But this is a different Bethany. Um, it's probably on the opposite side of Jericho, but it gives us at least the perspective. Why is he there? Well, there's water there. Okay, that's a, a lot of John the Baptist's ministry at this point. It, it needed to be near water because he was uh, encouraging people, if they believed his message, to identify with his message publicly through water baptism. We're going to see that's an issue for the contingency sent to question him. And so as we get into now verse 19, as that kind of sets the stage, we see that uh, it reads this. Now, this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? And so this is really going to set the stage, this verse right here for this, really the entire rest of the chapter, because John is going to now give testimony to the Jewish religious leaders. And then throughout the rest of the chapter, he's going to give testimony to the average people. Now, what I said before is true. When he started getting crowds coming out to him, we learned from Matthew 3, I think it's verses 4 and 5, that people were coming out to him from all these different areas. There were just huge throngs of people coming out, part, partly because some like to see a spectacle, right? We all like a little dumpster fire in our life to kind of look at once in a while. And John was a dumpster fire of a guy in terms of just looking at him, right? He's dressed in camel's hair. He's eating locusts and wild honey, and he's just out there screaming next to the river. You know, it's kind of like, who is this joker? Well, some people came out to actually hear what he had to say. But regardless, he is drawing a, a, a group. He is stirring it up. And he is, uh, is causing a problem for the Jewish religious leaders and the way that they viewed this. Because you know at this time, Gentiles were baptized to join Judaism. Who was John mostly baptizing? Jews. And they're like, what, what in the world? <laughs> What's going on here? What do you think you're doing? So some of this was odd, and this is why they're, they're sending uh, this contingent to, to kind of check in on him. This word testimony means to give a witness or to give a certification. It's confirmation on the basis of personal knowledge or belief. And you'll notice this at the book of John. I'll, I'll point this out, and I'll try to point it out as, along the way. But you're going to notice all of these legal judicial terms that, that the Apostle John uses. Testimony is going to be used there um, in noun and verb form 47 times in the book. And then you're going to see words like judgment, and you're going to see words like law, and you're going to see words like where, where the noun form is called is translated witness or to give testimony. 
all of these legal terms. And it's like John is presenting like an attorney his legal case. He's going to lay down the facts for you. He's going to choose these seven signs. He's going to give the seven discourses. He's going to give the seven I am statements. And he's going to say, I rest, your honor. I've presented my case. Now, what will you do with it? You're the jury, (laughs) so to speak. You get to decide if what John is saying is persuasive enough. If, If what John is saying convinced you to trust in Jesus Christ alone for eternal life. That's where this is going to go. So John the Baptist now is one of those witnesses that he's calling, that he's recording his testimony. And we know from Jewish law that a testimony for it to be valid required two to three witnesses to agree. This was designed to prevent false witness or falsely accusing or convicting someone of a crime they didn't commit. And so we see two to three witnesses. And so we know that John the Baptist's witness is not enough in a Jewish court of law. But we also, as we go on to read, that there are three witnesses uh, that identify Jesus as a Messiah, valid witnesses. John the Baptist is one. God the Father is going to be another. And then God the Holy Spirit is going to be the third to testify to the identity of Jesus Christ. When does that happen? Well, we're going to get there next week. But we're going to see that John, the identity of Jesus was confirmed to John at Jesus's baptism. And if you recall Jesus's baptism, John was there, clearly. Jesus was there, clearly. God the Father spoke from heaven. Remember what he said? This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And the Spirit of God did what? Descended upon him as a dove and then rested upon him. That was the sign we're going to see that revealed to John, oh, this is the Messiah, which must have been kind of weird because Jesus was John's cousin. So he kind of had grown up a little bit around each other. Now, he might have thought Jesus was a unique guy, you know, John's like, hey, let's go over here. Let's disobey our parents. And Jesus is like, no, not doing that. You know, I mean, there might have been instances like that. We don't know. It's not recorded. But the point is this. There, there are three testimonies here that validate the identity of Jesus Christ, even from a Jewish courtroom of law. We also know, again, that his ministry was well-known. This was gathering the, the crowds. Now, this is in and of itself, the, the fact that crowds were gathering to John the Baptist I believe, made the religious leaders very nervous. Just, just that fact in and of itself, because anyone who received that amount of attention, it would put you on the radar of the Romans. Remember, Jew, Jerusalem, the, the land of Israel was under domination of the Romans. They didn't take too kindly to what they viewed as potential uprisings. When they start seeing large people gather out following a public figure, immediately they would think rebellion. They're getting ready to come against the Roman empire. But not only that, they, you know, Jewish leaders are like, well, good. That'll take out John. He'll just get wiped out by the Romans. But then if they felt like the Roman leaders would associate them in some way with John, then they would be in trouble too. We kind of see this borne out. I'll flip there. You can just hold your finger in John 1. But John eleven forty eight, 48, you can kind of see this, this thinking, this time speaking of Jesus much later. But the Jewish religious leaders say, if we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and nation. So again, they felt like if the Romans associate us with this guy, we're going to be in big trouble. So this is very concerning for the Jewish religious leaders. They wanted to fly under the radar when it came to dealing with the Romans. They just wanted to blend in, not cause any problems because they didn't want their place and their nation taken away. Now, couple, one more comment on verse, actually, I lied to you, two more comments on verse 19. Verse 19, notice that this contingency that came out Um, were sent, they were priests and Levites. Very interesting. Later on in verse 20, 
uh, 4, we learn who they were sent by. They were sent by the Pharisees, okay? So the Pharisees sent priests and Levites. Now, very telling because probably what happened is the Sanhedrin, who was the Jewish uh, court of law, the Supreme Court of the day, probably sent this contingency, but it was probably the Pharisees within the Sanhedrin that sent it. Why is that? Because they held strictly to the Mosaic law. They were, you know, they, they were biblicists. I mean, they did try to keep to the law. They, they added a bunch of other laws. But one of the things that they viewed as their responsibility, and you can just write this down, we won't go there, Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 5, Deuteronomy 18, 20 through 22, those two passages give the Jewish religious leaders responsibility to do something, and that is to verify or validate religious teachers or prophets. That was their responsibility. So John is claiming to be a prophet. He's getting a large crowd out there. And in some ways they're like, okay, we got to check this guy out and validate. Is he a true prophet of God? Is he a false prophet of God? So this was part of the motivation as well. Now they asked this question in verse 19. They're going to, they're going to springboard off of this. And we're going to see that, that really their concern was this. Why was John baptizing people if he didn't have the proper authority to do so? Proper authority would have been what? Permission from the Sanhedrin. <laughs> John didn't go through the proper channels because his authority superseded the Sanhedrin. It was God himself who had called him to this ministry. And so this is really what they're trying to, to figure out. The first question is, who are you? And when he doesn't claim a higher authority, their, their next question is basically, who do you think you are? Okay. So it started with, who are you? When he didn't answer it the right way, they're like, who do you think you are? Like, you don't have the authority or the right to do that. So they began to interrogate John. Now, one of the things you've got to realize, and this is, this is borne out historically in, the, uh, in, in Jewish history, this time frame in history, there was a heightened messianic expectation. The, the, even the Jews were expecting at some level that Messiah would be coming soon. He would be on earth soon. Why? Because many of them took the prophecy in Daniel chapter 9, 24 through 27, literally. And you can do the math. And you can say, oh, do the math. Okay, he's probably here. And by the way, it's better math than why the rapture is going to, 88 reasons why the rapture is going to happen in 1988. That, that math really let me down. I thought I was going to get out of a, a middle school math exam that, that morning, and I didn't get out of it because I thought I was going to be gone. So that math really let me down. But this was good math. Daniel 9, 24, because from the decree of Artaxerxes, there was going to be 483 years until the Messiah would be cut off. That's what Daniel 9, 24 through 27 tells us. And so you can kind of back off. If he's going to get cut off at 483 years, you can kind of do the math and say, well, he's probably on earth right now. So there was this heightened expectation for Messiah. And so what you're going to see through this line of questioning would have been a typical Jewish thought process in terms of trying to identify somebody that was standing out in a religious way. First question we're going to see is basically, they don't ask it, it's just, uh, it's assumed, it's not recorded for us, but are you, are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ? This is their first question. Well, John's going to be really clear. It's, it's not him. He's, it's almost like he cuts them off before they even get to say it. Verses 20 through 21 says, he confessed, became John the Baptist and did not deny but confessed, I'm not the Christ. And they asked him, what then are you, Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Now notice that it says he confessed. The word confessed means to assent, to consent, to admit, to agree with the desire of another. 
Now, it's taken from a Greek word that's a compound word that means to say the same thing. That's what it means, to say the same thing. Now, who is he saying the same thing as? That's kind of the question. It's interesting that he uses the word confessed here, and then he also uses the word he did not deny. So there was something said by this contingent, and it was probably something like this. Well, you're not the Messiah, are you? It was kind of like a statement implied that he wasn't the Messiah. And John says, you know what? Yes, I agree with that. I confess I'm not the Messiah. I don't uh, I deny uh, that I'm, or I don't deny that, I am, that I'm not the Messiah. That's the double negative. That's weird. Okay. Anyways, you get the point. He's saying I'm not the Messiah. He, clearly, he, he agrees with them in that sense. In fact, the use of the, the word confessed, he did not, did not deny, seems to indicate that this contingent was, was designed to check his identity, basically implied to John, you're definitely not the Messiah. You know, they, they had a, a vision of what the Messiah would do, what he would look like, where he'd come from. They look at this guy's, you know, his hair's overgrown, he's in camel skin, he's not eating real well. I don't know about this. This guy's definitely not the Messiah. And John's like, I wholeheartedly agree. Yes, I'm not. I'm not. In fact, my whole goal is to tell you about him. That's my whole goal is to put him up and to exalt him. So I'm definitely not him. In fact, he was making this emphatic declaration in public. Uh, There was probably something accusatory in their tone here as they brought this initial uh, you know, basically just question to him. There's probably something going on there tone-wise that we can't really gather from the text. And so right away, I'm not the Christ. Okay, whoo. But now the Jews pull out their list and they say, okay, let's, let's work down this list. Okay, who else could you be of importance? Are you Elijah? And, and for those of us from a Western culture, Gentile culture, we're like, why would he bring up Elijah? That's just really weird. Remember Elijah, the the flaming chariot, you know, going up into heaven. And he's like, why would he bring up Elijah? Well, it's so interesting because as you kind of work your way through the Old Testament, again, messianic expectation, Elijah from a Jewish mindset was expected to return prior to the day of the Lord. Now we're going to talk about the day of the Lord, but one of the things that connected this to Elijah was that John John the Baptist's message was about what? Well, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The idea that, that, that the Messiah is coming to establish his kingdom, which is a component of the day of the Lord. And so they connected to this him. In fact, um, go, just hold your finger there and, and um, go with me to Matthew 17, 10, or you can just listen to me. Matthew 17, 10, you can see this expectation uh, because it says, and his disciples, speaking of Jesus, asked him saying, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Okay, so the mindset was, well, if Messiah is here, the messianic age is here, then John the Baptist is talking about the kingdom of God. Maybe he's Elijah. Maybe this is the Elijah that God was going to send before the Messiah. In fact, when we look at the day of the Lord biblically, I believe it's comprised of two time frames, just like there's a daytime and a nighttime of every day. Jewish reckoning reverses that. You know, we we think of like, oh man, I can't wait to get my day started, you know, and we think of that at like 6 a.m. or whenever you wake up, you know, it's like the morning time is when your day starts. Jewish reckoning, the day started at sundown. 
Okay. And so the nighttime portion of the day comes first and then the daytime portion. And so the nighttime portion of the day of the Lord prophetically is what I believe is going to be the seven year tribulation period on earth, that 70th week of Daniel. And, and by God's grace, if we're right and, and what we believe is true, the, the church won't be here for that. We'll be raptured before that. It's a pre-tribulation rapture because that is God pouring out his wrath on the entire world. And he's dealing, he's doing that for a reason. Daniel 9.24 gives us six reasons what he's trying to accomplish with the nation of Israel during this 70-week time period, of which this last 70th week is part of. So that's the nighttime portion. The daytime portion is the millennial kingdom. And you can trace that all throughout the Old Testament. You'll read a day of the Lord passage and you'll think, wait a minute, I thought the day of the Lord passage was judgment. And then you'll see a passage where the day of the Lord refers to the millennial kingdom. And you'll be like, okay, so it's the millennial kingdom. Well, then you'll read another passage and it refers to judgment. And you're like, wait a minute, how can this, how can it be both? Well, this is how it's both. Both of these fall into the category of the day of the Lord. And there's a prophecy in Malachi 4, 5, uh, and 6. And it specifically says that Elijah will be sent before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. So you can see why they would say, well, if this guy is saying that the king is here, that the Messiah is here. Maybe he's Elijah. Maybe he's the guy that's coming before. So you can see the logic in their thinking. And, um, and they're thinking, well, he doesn't, he doesn't look the way we thought Elijah would look. But if it's legit, if he is legitimately Elijah, then we should probably listen to him. But it sets up a, an interesting response by John. This is really what's fascinating about this whole Elijah angle. Because what does John say? Uh, in verse 21, they say, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Interesting. John says, I'm not Elijah. Now, go with me. Hold your finger there. This, is, this won't be a hard one because Malachi is right in front of Matthew. Just flip to Matthew and it's the next book over Malachi. Let's look at Malachi 4, 5 through 6. And we'll, we'll kind of come back to this in a second. Malachi 4, 5 says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And then look at verse 6. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. And so John sets up now this interesting response because John is going to say, I'm not... Elijah is spoken of in Malachi 4, 5 through 6. I'm not Elijah. But he did view himself in connection with another prophecy in Malachi. In fact, let's go back. Uh, if you're still there in Malachi, or maybe it's, uh, the page is still warm, you can find it quickly. Malachi 3, verse 1. We're going to see him connect himself with this passage, and then we'll read uh, Isaiah 40, verse 3 as well. Malachi 3, 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Jump down to John 1.23. And what does he say? He says, um, I am the voice crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. He was sent before to prepare the Lord. Go back with me. Sorry, I know we're flipping a little bit. Uh, we'll stop here in a second. Go to Isaiah 40, verse 3. Where exactly what I just read in John 1.23 is what John says, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. 
So it's really interesting because John is going to tell them, I'm not Elijah. And here's why it's so interesting. Because if you go to Matthew 17, Jesus did view John the Baptist's ministry as a potential Elijah ministry fulfilling Malachi 4, 5 through 6. Let's look at that quickly. Let's go back to Matthew 17. And let's start reading in verse 10. This is, I started this earlier, but this was the expectation that Elijah would come first. Now, why did they expect that? Malachi 4, 5, and 6. That's why they expected it. It says pretty clearly that Elijah would be sent before the coming of the day of the Lord. And so if John, again, is preaching the kingdom, he says the king's here, well, then Elijah's got to come first. And so it makes sense why they would ask him. But notice what Jesus said. Now, this is much later than the events that we have in John 1. This is after John the Baptist has been killed, okay? And, and Jesus says this. They ask him, why then do the scribes say Elijah must come first? Jesus answered and said to them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. Notice he's speaking future tense there. He's, in other words, Elijah hasn't come. He will do this in the future. Still, we're still looking out in the future for fulfillment. But then look what he says. It almost looks like a contradiction, but I'll show you why it's not. Verse 12, but I say to you that Elijah has come already. And they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them uh, of John the Baptist. He spoke to them of John the Baptist. Now, that's fascinating, right? And I think what Jesus is saying there is John the Baptist could have been Elijah had the nation responded. That was the type of ministry that he had. In fact, one of the things that Malachi 4.6 points out is what? Is that whoever that Elijah is, his message would be received. It would be responded to positively by the message. There would be a spiritual restoration of the corporate Israel. In fact, Malachi 4, 6, again, I'll pull it up. And he, speaking of Elijah who will come, will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with the curse. Now, the idea of turning hearts to, from the fathers to the children, children of the fathers, merely says this, they're going to be like-minded. They're going to be united in what they believe. They are going to be together, is kind of the idea. They're not going to be all over the place. They're going to be together in their response to the Messiah and the ministry of Elijah. And one of the things that we see during John the Baptist's ministry is that there was not a national, national restoration of Israel. There just wasn't. The Jewish leaders, as we're going to see, they get through questioning John, and John literally tells them, the Messiah is here among you. And they're like, okay, see, like, we're going back to Jerusalem. I mean, it's like, what? If, if someone, I mean, even though I knew it wouldn't be true, if someone said, I just saw Jesus and he's around the corner, I'm probably going to poke my head around the corner still, right? I'm, a, I'm interested in that. These guys weren't even interested. They just, they just left. You're going to see at the end of our account, it's like, oh, you know, basically, this guy's just being difficult. He won't tell us who he is. He's trying to tell you who he is. He was trying to tell them. They just had no interest. And so there wasn't a national ministry. So his ministry could not be the ministry of, of Malachi 4, 5, and 6 because there wasn't a national response of restoration. But he came, as we're going to see, it's interesting because God never does anything. God, this doesn't surprise God. In fact, I'm going to show you something that all the way back in the prophecy 
of John the Baptist's birth, God revealed even this concept in what he had the angel announce to Zacharias. In fact, let's go to Luke chapter 1. And we're doing more flipping than we normally do this morning, but I think, I'm hoping this will be helpful as we kind of work through this and why they're asking him these questions. But notice, notice what um, the angel says to Zacharias in Luke 1. Let's just pick up uh, in verse 16. And it says, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. Did you, did you catch that key word? Many, not all. He, already, the angel knew that uh, the baby has, uh, I mean, not even been conceived yet. And the angel knew because of the revelation of God that the, this generation of Jews were going to reject his message overall, that this would not be a corporate acceptance or receiving of this message. We saw in John 11, Jesus came to his own and what? His own received him not. Okay, the Lord knew this was gonna happen in his foreknowledge. Look at what he goes on to say in verse 17. He will also go before him, and then notice this next phrase, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. See, he's gonna go on the spirit and power of Elijah, but he's not gonna have the results of that Elijah ministry from Malachi 4. That's the distinction. He could have been had they responded, but they didn't. And so John, I think even at this stage in his ministry, he's got all of this success, all of these people coming out to him. <clears throat> and I think John realizes in why he says, I'm not Elijah, because he realizes that the hearts are not ready. They're not responding. This is not going to be a corporate response. Probably the Pharisees are standing off to the side sneering, you know. I remember years ago, there was a visitor in our church in Texas, and I was preaching, and, and, I, and I got up, and, I, and I, it was a couple. And every time I said something, um, the, the woman looked to her husband and just sneered at him, like almost implying, like, why are we here? <laughs> and she must have done it 10 or 15 times during my message. It became very uncomfortable. And finally, I just quit looking at that side of the room because I was getting really discouraged, you know? But, but you can imagine it, John probably in some way, the body language in his crowd from the religious leaders, he knew, hey, they aren't buying this. They aren't buying this. They're getting offended. They're not accepting this. So he says, I'm not Elijah because clearly the execution of the ministry is not resulting in what Malachi 4, 5, and 6 is teaching. So he recognizes that. And again, this is why Jesus, I believe, says that Elijah is coming first and he will restore all things. Future tense, John is already dead. And so he's still looking for the coming of Elijah in the fulfillment of Malachi 4 when the nation will finally respond to their Messiah corporately and be restored to him. So again, he could have been Elijah, but he was not. So this moves us to the next person on their list, right? They break out their list, all right, who's next? He's not the Messiah, he's not Elijah. Okay, maybe, maybe he's the prophet. And this is exactly what they say, are you the prophet? He answered no. Uh, again, this was a logical uh, movement here. And it's kind of funny, but it, I don't know if you notice this, but notice how John the Baptist's responses get shorter with each question. It's like he's had enough, right? First time he says, I'm not the Christ. Are you Elijah? I am not. Are you the prophet? No. <laughs> it's like, it's like and, and in some sense, he's probably like, I'm done talking about myself. That ain't my ministry. My ministry is to talk about the one coming after me. You guys are trying to make it about me and I'm done. And so he's like, no, I'm not the prophet. Now, the prophet, 
was also expected. Uh, the prophet with a capital P, not a prophet, right? It's the prophet because of what Moses said in Deuteronomy 18. They were looking for the prophet to come. And this, this prophet would be unique. I'm going to go to Deuteronomy 18. You could turn with me there if you want to. Um, Deuteronomy 18, 15 says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren, him you shall hear. And then jump down to verse 18. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren and will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And it shall be that whoever will not hear my words, which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. And so this kind of sounds like any prophet, but there's a distinction here. But Moses makes this distinction. This prophet would be a Jew from their midst and it would be like Moses. Okay, there's a, there's a uniqueness to the prophet that Moses prophesies about in, in, uh, prophesied about in Deuteronomy 18 in the sense of closeness, nearness, and direct communication from God to the people. Um, you can kind of see that distinction in Hebrews, right? Hebrews 1. Sorry, I keep, I keep telling you we're not going to flip more, and then we, we keep do. But uh, Hebrews 1, uh, 1 says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time, passed to the fathers by the prophets, plural, has in these last days spoken to us by his son. Okay? There's a uniqueness to this capital P prophet that was, that was going to be coming. And this is what Moses was predicting all the way back in Deuteronomy. And so there, but the problem was, is there was a lack of consensus among the Jews. They were confused as to who the prophet would be. Some people thought the prophet would be the Messiah, that that was one and the same. Some people thought it would be two distinct people. Okay, so this is why they're asking John, you know, some actually thought it was going to be the prophet Jeremiah raised from the dead. So they, they had all these kind of misconceptions. And so this is why they're, they're asking, uh, John, are you the prophet? Um, you can see this confusion uh, in John 7, 40 through 41. Therefore, many from the crowd, when they heard this saying, speaking of Jesus, said, truly, this is the prophet. They're talking about Deuteronomy 18. But others said, this is the Christ. And you can see they think that those are going to be two separate individuals. Some said, will the Christ come out of Galilee? They, they go on to say that. What's really fascinating is later in the sermon of Peter and the sermon of Stephen, we won't go there, but you can kind of see the verses there. Both Peter and Stephen understood this prophet to be Jesus Christ himself. They understood the prophet of Deuteronomy 18 to be the, the prophesied Messiah, the same person. But you can see the confusion uh, in the Jewish mind. So he's not the Christ. He's not Elijah. He's not the prophet. And you could just see this contingency. Okay, John, you know, we're out of bullets here. We, we're running out. Our list, is, our list is burnt. Our wad is spent. What, who are you? Like, can you, can you just identify, who are you claiming to be? And really, the, the, the heart behind the question is, why are you baptizing? That's really the heart around the question. But they want to know who you're claiming to be so that he can take this back. And so in verses 22 through 23, they said to him, who are you that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? He said, I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord as the prophet Isaiah said. And so the, the representatives of the Sanhedrin had run through all their options. And now, John, who are you in your own words? Just tell us who you are. And, and, and John is, is, is great. I love it. He just quotes the word of God. He just quotes the word of God. 
You know that passage in Isaiah? I'm that voice. I'm just the voice. I'm just somebody who's, who's screaming and, and will be as we get forward, pointing to the one that you should believe in. That's all I am. I'm just a voice to communicate who Jesus Christ is. And so, John, how would you describe yourself? Well, again, the real, this, this question is going to lead to their, their real question, which is, why are you baptizing if you're not one of these big-time future players that are going to be coming on the scene? Why, why are you doing this is really their question. And so, and in fairness to the group, John hadn't really given them an answer yet. They still didn't know who he was. They needed to report back to the people that had sent them. And so he says, I'm the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord as the prophet Isaiah said. That's in Isaiah 43. And so again, he's, he just views himself as a mouthpiece. And you're going to, as we go through these next few weeks, and as we get back into chapter three, John the Baptist comes on the scene again, and you're really going to appreciate John the Baptist because the guy had a laser narrow focus on who he was and what he was all about. And he, and he often, it didn't seem like he got too distracted from that. And he was humble. He understood his place in the grand scheme of ministry. You know, he wasn't counting the people coming to see him and go, man, oh, man, how many do we have today? A 500? Oh, wow. You know, and like really impressed with himself. He wasn't that way at all. In fact, he always wanted to exalt the Lord Jesus. And then he says that his job in, in screaming in the wilderness, his end goal is to make straight the way of the Lord. And so you see that his ministry, he realized at some point he was going to bow out. You know, it's like, it's like the opening act for some, you know, great performer. You realize that people aren't there to see you, right? You're, you're just the opening act. You're going to bow out because the main person that everyone is here to see is going to be coming on stage next. This is exact, exactly how John viewed his ministry. I just need to get out of the way. I need to point everyone to him, and then I just need to get out of the way. And this was how John viewed it. He's going to make straight the way uh, of the Lord. Now, it was customary in the East. Now, this is kind of interesting. We, we don't think about it in our day. Um, maybe we should on you know, some roads in Noonan. But, I, but it, was, it, was, it was expected that if a, somebody important, a sovereign, a king, a ruler, was coming to visit your city, they would go out and address the, the main road coming into the city. They would run out and fill the potholes. They would, they would repave it. They would make it smooth so that when the sovereign arrived, he wouldn't have to be bouncing up and down in whatever contraption he was riding in, running through potholes, bouncing up and down. So they would prepare the way in this sense. In fact, some cities, the potholes were so bad, they would build a, a brand new road just for the king to come in. And this is kind of the idea that John gives here. He wanted to, to prepare this nation to receive their king, to receive their Messiah, prepare them morally and spiritually. And the next reason, and this is why it's so important, this is why John coming in the spirit and power of Elijah, but not the effect of Elijah in Malachi 4 is so important because of this. For Messiah to come and establish his kingdom, he must be received corporately. And this is what the Old Testament taught. We're going to look at it here in a section. There's got to be national repentance of the nation. There had to be a change of mind from the nation, not simply individuals here and there in the nation, but nationally, they needed to respond to their Messiah. And John was simply attempting to prepare them to do so. He was leading out with the message. We're going to look at John the Baptist's message here uh, again here in a second. But you know, let's go uh, again, let's go back to Zacharias, not too far. 
It, go to Malachi. We found Malachi. Go one more book to the left, Zechariah. And I just want to show you the, the corporateness of this response in that future day when Jesus does come to establish his kingdom. I want you to see what it's going to look like and what John was trying to prepare the people for, uh, but unfortunately they did not respond. Um, let's, I've got t- uh, 10 through 13, one. You can actually start in 12, one, but I'll, I'll just start in verse 10. Uh, and I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem uh, the spirit of grace and supplication. Uh, then they will look on me whom they pierced. Um, by the way, pretty incredible prophecy considering Roman crucifixion was not even a thing when this prophecy was recorded. They're going to look on the one whom they pierced. And did, was Jesus pierced for you and I? Yeah, a few times, four times, right? Both hands, his feet, his side. They're going to look on him whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. Now, notice all this, this corporate language coming up here in verse 11. And in that day, there shall be a great mourning in Jerusalem, like the mourning at Hadad Rimon and in the plain of Megiddo, and the land shall mourn every family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself and their wives by themselves and the family of the house of Nathan by itself. And he just keeps going on through the end of chapter 12. And then look at verse thir- uh, chapter 13, one. And in that day, a fountain shall be opened for the house of David, for the inhabitants of Jerusalem, for sin and for uncleanness. And you see, there's going to be a day where national Israel responds to their Messiah, but it wasn't this day. That's what's tragic. It could have been. John was preaching the same message. John was predicting the same message, but they didn't respond. And so this is why his ministry was so important. This is why he was a prophet among prophets, as Jesus identifies him later, because he was the one selected by God to not only prophesy about the Messiah, but to physically point him out. And we're going to start seeing that here in the next coming weeks with how he did that. And so their response to this is, what do you mean by being a voice in the wilderness? What, what are you talking about? Can you explain that? No. It's, who do you think you are? <laughs> what authority do you think you have? He's going to word it this way in verse 24. Now, those who were sent from the Pharisee uh, were from the Pharisees, And they asked him, saying, why then do you baptize if you're not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? And now their real question comes out. If you're not any of these special people, why on earth are you baptizing disciples? You're not qualified. You you have no validity. You have no authorization to be doing what you're doing. In fact, everything that you're doing is completely inappropriate, and they're missing the whole point. And John's going to try to point that out to them. But again, they're still not going to get it. Now, this is, a, again, a helpful contextual detail. They're coming from the Pharisees. Uh, and, and we know that the Pharisees and Sadducees comprise the Sanhedrin. But the Sadducees didn't care about the literal interpretation of the Word of God. They, all, they took it allegorically. They weren't so concerned about these details of the law. So this is who sends these priests and these Levites. It's the Pharisees because they have some technical questions for John, as we've seen in terms of his identity. Uh, again, why then do you baptize? That's really their question. If you're not these three big time players, then why are you doing this? This makes no sense. And so again, he has no title, official capacity. They're getting uh, irritated. And the main reason they're getting irritated is because he is exhorting Jewish people who typically don't get baptized, have no reason to get baptized, to identify with his message publicly, which implies what? What they were believing before was wrong. 
And what were they believing before? Everything the Pharisees had taught them. So you can see how this trails back to the Pharisees. It's really a criticism of them and the incorrectness of what they were teaching. And so the question implied that it was inappropriate for John the Baptist to, to baptize. As I mentioned, Jews would practice baptism for ritual cleansing from time to time, but they always baptize themselves. That's another interesting thing. Because there's a little bit of a humility when you place your, yourself into the hands of somebody else. Because now you're saying what I believed is wrong, what he is saying is right, and I'm going to trust what he's saying. And so there's this, there's this humility required there. And see, one of the things that I think was um, so interesting here as you keep looking is, is there was no precedent. John couldn't point to say, oh, well, the, the prophet so-and-so used to do this, or our, our rabbi so-and-so used to do this. There was absolutely no precedent in the history of the nation of Israel for what John was doing. And, and for the Jew to, to think that there was something that they needed to change their mind about, they just flat out didn't believe it. They thought they had everything, you know, on a stick, basically. They, I'm, I got this all figured out. I'm on a stick. I'm a, my plums, you know, my line is plumb. Everything is good to go. And this is what the mindset of the average Jew, especially the Jewish religious leaders were. And here was the problem. They understood proselyte baptism. They understood why Gentiles needed to be baptized to become Jews. They're just like, there's nothing wrong with us Jewish people. So why are we getting baptized? What is the purpose? And John's basically saying, you are wrong. He's, he's basically telling them, you are wrong. You think because you're Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's sons that you're going to get into the kingdom. You think because you're circumcised that you're going to get into the kingdom. You think because you attempt to try to keep the Mosaic law that you're going to get into the kingdom. And John says, you're not going to get in that way. You've got to be born again. You need a righteousness equal to God's righteousness. And you can't get it through physical lineage. You can't get it through ritual. You can only get it through the new birth. And this was John's message. And you know what? It was offensive to the Jew. In fact, what does Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? Because the, the crowd understands this. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. See, they needed a righteousness equal to God's righteousness, not trying to be the best Pharisee on earth. That, that's filthy rags. That's what Isaiah 64, 6 said. All their effort... And so John, is, so John is listening to all this. This is their response. And I think where John goes from here in verse 26 and 27 is he's basically going to say, look, guys, you are getting hung up on the wrong thing. You, you are not focused on the right thing. Let me point out the person you should be interested in. Let me, let me get your focus off what I'm doing. Don't get distracted by this and really focus on the one coming after me. And this is how he's going to respond here in verse 26 and 27. He's going to say, I baptize with water, but there stands one among you whom you do not know. It is he who coming after me is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to lose. And so John doesn't necessarily downplay his ministry, but he elevates the person of the Messiah and what the Messiah was going to do. And the fact that he's now present on earth, he's like, get your eyes off of me. Quit focusing on me. Look over there. Look at the one that's going to be coming. Just don't be so distracted by what I'm doing and so ready to write me off. You know, baptism, uh, Greek word, it's just transliterated into English. It's baptizo. You can recognize that in Greek. It, it simply means to put into, to immerse, to submerge, to identify with, or to place 
in union with. And one of the things that we like to emphasize here, because it's not given uh, you know, distinction a lot of different places, the word itself does not convey water. You know, we think of that. Every time we hear baptism, we think water. We think it just automatically goes. But the word itself doesn't mean that. There's examples all throughout Greek literature where someone who was sinking in debt, debt, figuratively debt, was said to be baptized in debt. They were submersed in debt. One of my favorite uses of baptizo in the old days is, uh, was a pickle recipe. And seriously, they found a Greek pickle recipe where you take a cucumber and you would dip the cucumber in seasoning and then you would baptize the cucumber in vinegar and you would put it under and it would soak in vinegar because then it would take on the qualities of vinegar. There's all these other uses of the word baptism. It means to place into, to identify with, to place in union with. The actual substance of what you're being identified with varies. Now in John's baptism, it was water. Clearly, Jordan River, he's baptizing in water. But we're going to see that Jesus' baptism, the one who's coming among them, it wasn't a wet baptism. We're not talking about water baptism. We're talking about a different type of baptism here. And so again, John's baptism is with water. And so what that tells us is that those who believe John's message underwent water baptism. It was a public way to identify with John's message. That's all it was. In fact, remember John's message, very uh, summarily summed up by the Apostle Paul in Acts 19.4, said, Paul, uh, Paul said, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, baptism of changing your mind, a change of mind needed. What was the change of mind? Saying to the people, they should believe on him who would come after him, that is on Christ Jesus. And so that's John's baptism. John's saying, you're getting caught up. Let me tell you about the real baptism coming. That's when the Spirit of God through the Messiah is going to identify believers with the Messiah. The Spirit of God is going to place believers in union with the Messiah. That is a dry baptism. That's a spiritual baptism. That's talked about in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. Water baptism for believers in our day simply pictures spirit baptism. That's the real baptism. Water baptism is a ritual baptism. And this is what John is trying to distinguish. You guys are getting hung up on water baptism. I'm telling you, there's something better to get hung up on. And it's not me. It's not what I'm doing. It's what he is going to do when he comes on the scene, when we identify him. And this is what he's going to say. So John was always focused on pointing others to Jesus Christ. That was his main mission. And so he goes on to testify in our passage here. But there stands one among you whom you do not know. It is he who coming after me is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to lose. Again, don't make a big deal about my baptism ministry because it's only designed to point you to the real ministry coming from the Messiah. Notice that he describes Jesus or the Messiah in, in, in a couple of different ways. There stands one among you. This this should have locked this group into staying there and listening more and asking more questions. He says, right now, the Messiah is on earth. I mean, if you were a Jew, if you were living that time, wouldn't you be like, where, where, when are you going to identify him? Where, where can I, where can I meet him? Wouldn't you, I mean, wouldn't that be your response? He's like, you may have even crossed paths with him. You may have shopped at the market with him. You may have been on the trail with him. He's among you right now. You'd think, wow, that's really cool. He says, you don't know 
whom you do not know. John uses this verb in the perfect tense. It means you didn't know him in the past. You don't know him right now. You continue not to know him. I don't think this was necessarily an insult or he was casting shade on them. I think he was just saying the Messiah is here, but he hasn't been identified yet. Once I identify him, you're going to know who he is, but he's here because I've been told that's part of my ministry. We'll look at that next week. In fact, we know that John didn't even know the Messiah's identity for a time. He would discover it on the day of Jesus's baptism. That's when it was revealed to him specifically. We'll get into that next week. So why didn't John just come out and tell this delegation that Jesus was the Messiah? Probably because he, he understood their attitude. He read the room pretty well. They probably weren't ready for that message. And so he didn't even say anything. Again, they didn't even follow up on his comments. Now, I'm going to close out with these two points. He mentioned this last week. Actually, we got John's testimony in verse 15 last week, very similar. The idea is that Jesus outranks me. Even though he came after me in time, he outranks me in importance. And so he says that again here. And then he uses this phrase, which is so interesting. Uh, it's, it's the level of humility expressed here is probably hard to explain, but I'm going to try. Um, it, his view of his personal importance as it related to Jesus's personal importance, importance is amazing. He comes out with these sayings, and we're used to them because we've heard them in church, right? This one, we get to John 3, 30. He's going to say, he must increase, I must decrease. We like that one. That's really kind of cool too. But the amount of humility that this man had is incredible because what we have to understand is, is he ripped a phrase here from the rabbinical Jewish world for a purpose. Who was talking to him? Levites and priests. Who are they going back to report to? The Pharisees, who are technical law experts, rabbinical Judaism was, was king in that day. And this is what he, he rips out of rabbinical Judaism. You know, in the rabbinical world, rabbis would take upon students. Well, students would never pay rabbis monetarily, but what they would do is they would do all sorts of services for the rabbis to meet their needs. They wouldn't pay them, but they would serve them in certain ways so that they, they could meet their financial needs in, in some ways. But the rabbis and the students had to draw the line somewhere. And here's what rabbinical teaching of this time said. Every service which a slave performs for his master shall a disciple do for his teacher. Every service a slave would do for his master, that's what the disciples have to do for their teacher, except one exception. Except the loosing of his sandal thong. He doesn't have to do that. Because that's too menial for the student to do. That's... That's, that's too low even for a student to go. And now look at what John says, whose sandal strap I'm not even worthy to unloose. Not that I'm more worthy, I don't have to do it. If Jesus gave me the job of unstrapping his sandal strap, I wouldn't even be worthy to do that. You see the level of humility that John has. And I just, you know, I love John. I think we should all be a little bit more like John, you know, in, in terms of the mindset of our lives, which is, I'm a voice, I'm here for Jesus Christ, put our agendas aside, put our little hobby horses aside, get out of our own way, and just exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what John did. And we're going to see more of that as we go the next couple of weeks in terms of his testimony. Let's close there with a word of prayer. Lord, I, um, I do thank you for the ministry of John the Baptist. It, it's heartbreaking to see that the, the generation there did not respond in kind, but, but Lord, we're, we're grateful uh, that you've revealed this truth um, in your word to us, that we can read it and study it. And uh, Lord, our heart's desire in our life is to simply be 
um, this kind of witness for the Lord Jesus, just a, just a voice, uh, just somebody that doesn't get too caught up in our own selves, but, but exalts Jesus in everything that we do and say. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.